morning or good afternoon, depending on where you are. I'm Paul Noglos, executive producer of Cressonia. Welcome to our monthly installment of Cressonia Conversations. Our topic today will focus on keys to true advancement in nutritional science. To help us fully explore this topic, I'm excited to be joined by Dr. Darius Mazafarian and Carter Williams. You saw a little bit about each of them in the intro, but I'm just gonna read you a little bit more. Darius Mazafarian is a cardiologist, Dean of the Tufts Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy, and Professor of Medicine at Tufts Medical School. Dr. Mazafarian has authored more than 400 scientific publications on dietary priorities for obesity, diabetes, and cardiovascular diseases, and on evidence-based policy approaches and innovations to reduce these burdens both in the US and globally. Thomson's Reuters has named him as one of the world's most influential scientific minds. Carter Williams is the CEO of iSelect Fund, a St. Louis-based venture capital fund investing in true innovation at the nexus of food and health. Before we jump into our conversation, I just want everyone online to know that they can ask questions, go through the Q&A button, and we'll try to get to as many of them as we can. You don't need to wait till the end. You can put in your question and we'll get to it in the flow of the conversation. With that, I'd like to dive right in. Dr. Mazafarian, you stress the theme that food is medicine, and it is almost synonymous with our theme of food is health. Talk to us about your research at Tufts that shows that food is the number one cause of poor health on the planet. You go so far as to say that people fear the food system is making them sick and that they are right. That's provocative. Please explain. Well, you know, this, this goes back to my, to my gut feeling when I was in my training in medical school and internal medicine residency and cardiology all those years that food was making my patients really sick and yet we weren't learning anything about it. In, in all of those years of training. And that, that right there you know, should be a little bit of an epiphany for us all. And, and then, you know, second, when I started reading the science myself to try to really understand what the science showed that was at the height of the low fat diet, I realized that even then, you know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, the science, uh, the modern science didn't support our kind of policy guidelines and policy recommendations, which at that time were around, um, you know, low fat diets. And so, that those that you know uneasy feeling that that food was making my patients sicker than anything else, and that our our science wasn't being translated into policy and systems change has now been confirmed by many lines of evidence by by Tufts and and by others. And this paper here uh, is is you know collaborative work that that we did with, with others uh, led by uh, you know a, a group at, in, in University of Washington, and this shows the numbers of deaths in the United States and any. Uh, in any given year, and the top preventable cause of death is is poor poor eating, and this is true in every country around the world, and it's almost all due to metabolic and cardiovascular diseases, as well as as well as some cancers. And so, if you care about health and healthcare spending, and you you have to have food at the very top of the list. And of course, this isn't at the top of the list in our healthcare system. It isn't in the top of the list in our healthcare policy discussions. It's never it's never discussed when. Republicans or Democrats argue about healthcare. People are just arguing about who's going to pay, and we have to move away from arguing about who's going to pay to actually how do we reduce costs. And the only way to reduce costs is to make people healthier. Wow, um, Carter, can you attach some numbers to give people a better grasp of the astronomically high costs involved here? Yeah, and and the numbers help us sort of understand the market. Uh, the chart we've got here. Take some direct assignable costs, diabetes, cancer, and sort of, and, and actually one of the problems is they sort of say it's 327 billion. The, the, the aggregate number is of poor nutrition, the cost of poor nutrition between direct healthcare costs, which are some listed here, and the implication in terms of broader societal costs of early death. Uh, not being able to work. Uh, we think the number is as high as $1.9 trillion a year in the United States. So we spend on the order of $1.9 trillion a year due to poor nutrition in the United States. And the fact that some of these numbers, uh, you know, with the, the policymakers are thinking this is a billion dollar cost and that the actual implication is more $1.9 trillion, 
uh, really sort of shows one gap in thinking. The other thing we observe is, is the food system in the United States is about 1.7 trillion a year. And as we think about this market and we sort of say food cost is 1.7 trillion, uh, healthcare, remedial healthcare cost is on the order of 1.9 trillion. We're now talking about a $3.6 trillion market opportunity per year in the United States that we're spending. And as an investor, that's a big market. And so as we think about it, uh, we don't think about it as a food market. We don't think about it as a healthcare market. We think about it as a, a $3.6 trillion nutrition market. And when you start thinking about it from a nutrition standpoint, uh, it shifts your thinking. It, it, as an investor, as an innovator, as somebody thinking about a market problem, we start thinking about, well, is there a way to reduce the cost of good protein? Is there a way to help patients understand earlier uh, that maybe they're pre-diabetic? So can we, you know, we've got a device called Readout that lets people measure ketone levels much more easily. You know, are there technologies that we can start to insert in the conversation that let individuals manage their nutrition rather than how much they eat or how often they go to the doctor? Okay, it leads me into my, my next question for the two of you. It seems like every week there's a new diet on the New York Times bestseller list. And yet for most people, these end up being fads that they're only able to stick to for a few weeks instead of making real lifestyle changes. So I guess my question is, how do we go about leveraging the power of healthy eating to actually improve health? How can food make you healthy? How do you, how do you cut through all the noise? I, I don't think this is what the two of you are talking about is you know, the diet of the week, the diet of the day. Well, yeah, I, 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 first I want to echo everything you said in your introduction and also that Carter just, just outlined, you know, this is a huge market opportunity to, to create nutrition security, to make us, us healthier. Uh, I was in a discussion earlier with, with my, my friend and colleague, Chef Jose Andres, and, and he said, you know, food, food is the problem right now and food should never be the problem. Food has to be the solution. And, and that's right. Like we've, we've created a food system over the last 70, 80 years, very purposefully to, to meet certain needs that we thought were important in the 50s and 60s. And it's a legacy food system that addressed those goals. And we can talk about that, but doesn't address our, our modern, modern uh, goals. And so we've actually created the food system very purposefully to look like what it does today. And, and we can very purposefully shift it again. Um, and, you know, I think this, this um, you know, your question about consumer confusion, public confusion, policymaker and industry confusion is very real. And I guess I would just say, there's no, there's no simple answer to, what, to your question, but I would emphasize a few things. One, nutrition, modern nutrition science is very, very young, less than 100 years old, about 90 years old from the discovery of the first vitamin, vitamin C, 32, 89 years ago. This is one of the youngest sciences we have. So, and most of the first 50 years focused on vitamins and minerals and vitamin deficiency diseases like scurvy and, and other things. And so the, the modern nutrition science of chronic diseases, obesity, brain health, cardiovascular diseases, or very, very new, you know, the microbiome and autoimmune disease and inflammation, um, it's less than 20 or 30 years old, uh, th those modern science. So, so it's a very new science. So that's point number one. And what that has caused is first, the science has changed. The science has changed a lot in the last 20, 25 years. And so part of this confusion is the mixing of this changing science with kind of old messages. The second part of this confusion uh, is that, um, you know, that there is actually a lot of stuff we don't still know. And so just that title there, coconut oil, heart healthier, just type. I don't know. I've been studying this for 30 years. I don't know the answer to that. Intermittent fasting, does a new study show downsides or not? I don't know. So there's a lot of stuff we actually don't know. And so I think that's the second thing that we really need to have a a new national push, a national moonshot to invest in nutrition science to answer these questions faster than at the pace we're, we're answering them now. Uh, we, we are answering them, but we're answering them too slowly. And, and the third thing I would say is, I don't want to say we don't know anything. We know enough to do a lot. And so, and so I think it's these 
three issues that are all intermingling and, and confusing me as somebody who does this every day. And of course, then con confusing the public is the science is very new and changing. Um, there's a lot we still don't know. And there's some that some things that we do know, and all of that's getting intermingled into a very confusing message for, for the public. And, and, and so, you know, one of the things we're doing, uh, you know, uh, Carter mentioned ISLEC bringing together stakeholders. At Tufts, we have the Food and Nutrition Innovation Institute, which brings together businesses, investment funds, pharmaceutical companies, insurance, healthcare, big food, ag, and nonprofits to try to lay that sound foundation of credible science. And so that progress will be based on credible science, because if it's not based on credi credible science, the business and the solution is going to be a flash in the pan. That's, that's really interesting. Um, I'm jumping around a little bit here, but you know, on an iSelect deep dive earlier this month, that included our friend, Dr. Rob Lustig, you both stressed the incredible importance of eating healthy food and proper nutrition is the key to true health. And that's what we're talking about here. But it sounded like this wasn't what either of you were taught in med school. And so is that beginning to change or is there still a long way to go in terms of, in terms of doctor education? Yeah, well, so first I wanna emphasize that, you know, the whole system, the market is actually broken. You have a broken economic market. If you just define it by formal economic principles, the, the food market is not giving consumers what they think and expect they're getting. And so when you have a broken market, we need system solutions and infrastructure solutions across the whole market, not just education and knowledge for, for people and, you know, just guidelines and physician education. So just educating physicians won't change the broken system, but what it will do and is really important to do is to create culture change around how we how we value and address food and nutrition in healthcare. And of course, for individual patients who are able to go to a doctor and, and get that sound advice and make changes, it will help them one, one by one. So for those two reasons, it's very important. Um, but, you know, it's not enough. Uh, but, you know, it, it'll, it'll have only incremental effects by itself. There, there's been really interesting research over the last 10 years now showing that at all levels of medical education, from medical school to residency to subspecialty fellowship to practicing doctors, about 90% of, of physicians think that nutrition is one of the most important things they should learn about. And about 90% of them say, I don't know enough. And so there's actually a demand from physicians to learn about this. And we've worked with colleagues at Harvard Law School and elsewhere on this problem. And while you know individual medical schools are, are one by one trying to, to do things around this, again, I believe in systems approaches, we need to change the system. The simplest thing to do while there's a little bit of, of, of movement, the simplest thing to do now is change the tests. If we change the US medical licensing exam that all physicians take, if we change the board specialty exams that all people have to take after their specialties, and if we change the continuing, continuing medical education requirements that all practicing physicians have to do, to just have 10% of questions beyond food and nutrition, right, will change education overnight. And, and there are ways for actually the federal government to kind of push and promote that since they pay for a lot of that. So, so, so I think it's important. Um, we need to do it. Um, it's not nearly enough by itself. Uh, and we need to do it through basically changing the tests. And um, one thing I wanted to pick up on, you talk about doctors instead of writing you a prescription for a fancy drug or an expensive procedure, they actually write a prescription for you to get healthy food at the supermarket. And we worked with Dr. Scott Morris at Church Health in Memphis, and we saw this firsthand. And he's working with United Healthcare and others to do just that. Is this starting to become more widespread where, where doctors are actually taking this initiative on their own? Yeah, absolutely. And I'd love to hear, you know, what Carter is seeing in, in the investment world, because I see both, you know, non, this was traditionally a nonprofit space and for-profit companies are rapidly seeing the value here of helping provide nutritionally sound, either produce for people that can still cook and shop or full meals for people that can't and to actually get reimbursed because it, it, it's at, at worst cost effective and no more costly than giving drugs for, for these conditions. And in some cases actually saves money. And, and I want to emphasize that that difference because cost effective means you you get a good buy on your dollar spend for health. And almost everything we do in healthcare is cost effective. So, you know, um, statin drugs for high cholesterol or blood pressure lowering drugs or screening for cancer. None of those things actually save money. If you go to the doctor and he identifies you have high blood pressure and gives you a blood pressure lowering drug, 
you don't save money for the healthcare system, but, but it's a good deal to give you to pay for that. But some of these interventions actually save money, put money back into the healthcare system. So this is happening. This is happening at state levels with um, the state of Massachusetts has put $150 million into this over the last couple of years. The state of California has put uh, $6 million into this in just the last couple of years. Private organizations like Kaiser Permanente, Geisinger Health, you know, others you mentioned are starting to, starting to do this. Um, but there's a, there's a mess of regulatory barriers. There's a mess of, of outdated regulatory barriers that are preventing this from going, going to scale. And so this is where we need, you know, federal policy. Uh, and uh, Congressman McGovern, who's chair of the House Rules Committee, which is one of the most powerful committees in the House, last year introduced a bill directing the Secretary of Health and Human Services to, to test and pilot and understand these barriers. But I would love to hear Carter's you know, thoughts because I, there's, I see a lot of companies entering this space. And Carter, one thing before you answer, I wanted to take a look at this from a couple of different vantage points. And I was gonna, I was gonna ask the, each of you how, how, let's go first with Big Pharma. How is, how is Big Pharma reacting to this? Because it would seem to severely undercut their business model or am I mistaken on that? I think his, his video might be off. Um, I think on the pharma side, uh, I don't know that they know how to react to this at this point. Um, or that they have a mechanism to react to it. Uh, it may be done in terms of things like diabetes, but they've got a challenged business model. If, if people need to eat better, uh, it is unclear they have a voice in the conversation. And so I'm not sure that we've really seen them on the market basis. We haven't seen them take a shift. We've seen a little bit of behavior change in the pharmaceutical companies where they're developing applications that drive better compliance of drugs, which is particularly helpful. So you can imagine like a Novo Nordisk perhaps coming up with a verticalized uh, a diabetes treatment that includes insurance, insulin, and, uh, and a food program. And, and so I know that some of the companies are thinking about that type of integrated solution and, and there are reasons why that might be beneficial to them. Uh, but, but there's still a question as, as to where's the point of introduction going to be. We've seen on the insurance companies where they know that they need to feed people better, but they don't necessarily have the right incentives to do that. Uh, in many cases, the insurance companies are operating as uh, a form of benefit management for a corporation. And the sort of twists and turns of how that works and how they deliver food, they've started to introduce better food programs for people that uh, do have diabetes, but they're not necessarily doing programs to prevent diabetes. And so just, we're seeing yeah, versions of it. I just had a, a follow-up on that. Because with the insurance companies, I think the thought would be that healthier individuals actually do help their bottom line. And this is what we saw with United Healthcare in Memphis was that healthier individuals actually does significantly help their, their business model. Whereas big pharma may be looking at, well, you know what, this is a, this is a person who should be on Lipitor or, or some other, some other drug so I just, I th do you think the insurance companies are there yet? I, I think you're saying in a corporate setting, it still remains to be seen. I, I personally have seen and talked to some senior executives that, that point out how they're leading, but other people in the industry have structural reasons why they don't want to lead. Got it. Um, so they're oddly, for example, the insurance companies that cover a lot of Medicaid patients don't, and I don't know the full story of this, don't have the right economic, they're paid per life. They're not really paid per cost of care. And so there are these weird incentives in there, but that certainly I, you know, certainly at Aetna, you know, Aetna's work with CVS and, uh, and the idea that you walk into a CVS and it, it's, there's a genius bar and there's a, a person there that you go up to and say, hey, I'm 65 years old. I'm not, I don't have enough energy to play with my grandchildren. I'd like to get better. What should I be doing differently? And that there's someone there that sort of says, 
well, here's the right, uh, you've got diabetes, here's the right drug that you should be on, here are the right sneakers you should be wearing, here's the right Fitbit that you should be wearing to help integrate it. And why don't you come in next week and talk to me again and, and come in and, and more and, and develop a sort of interactive kind of engagement. You know, you're seeing things like that. But then on the other side, when I look at some of the Medicaid insurance companies, they, they could give, uh, you know, uh, they don't really care. <laughs> and I don't know exactly know why that is, but I, it is very clear. They don't, they, this amount of lives, I get paid this amount and, and I report my EPS and, and I'm off to the races. Do you think, do you think the, I, uh, I, I, I oh, go ahead, Doc. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Doc. Oh, yeah, I was going to add a little bit on the on the pharmaceutical company with our experience, but do you want to ask your question first or should I well, go, chime no, in? go ahead. We'd like to hear it. Yeah, so so I think that there are definitely some some companies, insurance companies, uh, excuse me, pharmaceutical companies that are very interested in this. And so Nova Nordisk, Nova Nordisk is part of our innovation council, GSK, consumer healthcare is part of our innovation council. And and so they're interested in this for several reasons. You know, one and maybe most fundamental they see the writing on the wall that this is we just this is not sustainable. Healthcare is almost twenty percent of our entire economy. It's gone from five percent of the federal budget in fifty years ago to almost thirty percent of the federal budget now and rising. Same thing on the state level. It's crushing competitiveness of of private businesses who are paying for healthcare premiums. It's leading to wage stagnation. So they just know that they they you know they they can't they won't be profitable if the country goes into economic collapse. More more directly. I think they're very interested in um, what the consumer wants, and and consumers want to to you know have uh, both you know feel good and health and and the best drugs. And so I think that idea that Carter mentioned of combinations, and let's say Nova Nordisk with their GLP one uh, inhibitors, if they show that that works even better for obesity reduction with the right diet, right, that's a win win for them. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that's a second you know win win. And then and then of course GSK has their consumer healthcare division, which which does supplements and over-the-counter and other things. And so they're really interested in nutrition science and kind of food as medicine there. So, so I think pharma's mostly watching, but there are some pharma that's leading, but I haven't seen any, any real sign that pharma's opposed. Uh, you know, at, at most, they're going to be neutral. And then on the insurance side, I think the most action right now is for people that have uh, that, that are both the healthcare insurer and the provider, right? Because then they see this very clearly. And so you know, organizations like Kaiser Permanente that, that, that do both or, or accountable care organizations, which are hospital organizations that get paid now based on sort of risk sharing. Those are the models that are going to be more, more proactive. We've got, a question, we've got a question that came in from Steve Coulter. He's asking, what are your thoughts on having individual health insurance premiums being based on some health metrics such as BMI, et cetera? Uh, he says, on the one hand, it could lead to higher costs for the most vulnerable, but on the other hand, hitting people's wallets is one of the strongest ways to drive behavior. Yeah, it seems so, to be a good way to align incentives for the greater good. What, the, what there, on that? there is there is some research on this, um, and um, and also the Affordable Care Act allowed this to happen, or, or maybe it wasn't exactly, but it was during the Obama administration actually loosened the rules so that insurance companies could pilot this. And basically, the the sum of the evidence is that that kind of just changing your premiums works for very, very simple behaviors, um, maybe like smoking or getting your prostate cancer screening or something. When it gets to complicated behaviors that, that have to do with, you know, shopping, figuring out your meal plan, your, your budget, your cultural preferences, right? Those sorts of simple, just one-off change, change your premium don't have a huge impact. Uh, on the other hand, if you combine more direct incentives like not changing your premiums, but actually paying for healthy food, subsidizing healthy food. And you combine that with gamification, peer support, prizes, um, education, that works really well. And so, you know, we work with John Hancock uh, Life Insurance, one of the, you know, the oldest life insurance companies in the US, almost 160 years old. And they have a life insurance program called Vitality, which rewards their clients for, for healthier eating. And John Hancock actually pays up to $50 a month out of pocket for their life insurance clients to buy healthier produce. And they combine that again with gamification and, and contests and prizes. And, you know, if you do this, this day, if you get your steps, if you buy this food, you, you, you might, you know, win, a, win a, a gift card and so on. That's very effective. So I think that, um, you know, the simple kind of distant change your yearly premium is a little bit 
too distant from the immediate consumer experience, but companies that are integrating your day-to-day decision and giving you incentives at the point of shopping and, and making it fun, I think that's really where the future, uh, one of the ways that we need to, to the future lies. Um, our good friend, Dr. Rob Lustig actually has a question for us. Um, he said, Dari, I'll use the, uh, the informal. He said, Dari, as you know, real food is the answer. But as you also know, one size does not fit all. How do you align the doctor, the grocery store, and the insurance company to get the right real food to the right patient? Well, I, I know, I think first, you know, we want to define real food. And I know my friend, Dr. Lustig is, you know, thinks that processing of food is the big problem. We have to kind of return to unprocessed food, but there's a lot of complexity and uncertainty there. So there aren't many foods that we can actually eat unprocessed, basically fruits and nuts. After that, we have to process and package food and we have to have convenient food. Not everybody's going to be able to cook a seven hour dinner from their hydroponic, you know, homegrown organic garden, right? You're going to have to go out and get something from the restaurant or get a quick thing and put it in the microwave. So I think it's not about real food in just like, again, we have to go back to nature. We, we're going to, we're, the foods, we're, ne- we're never going to fix today's problems with yesterday's solutions, right? We're going to fix today's problems with tomorrow's solutions. So we have to figure out how to both, we have to figure out how to optimally process food. We, we have to process food, but how to optimally process it. So I think that's a huge area for, for science as, as a first step. And then I think second, you know, to align the, um, to align all of the pieces, right, it, it gets back to systems changes. And so we need, we need infrastructure changes. We need to change the, the way healthcare can integrate, you know, food and nutrition into healthcare. We need to change and advance the way SNAP, the largest, um, you know, nutrition feeding program, formerly known as food stamps, incentivizes healthier eating. We need to change our public health infrastructure. The, the, the federal government and the states together spend 160 billion a year on direct medical care for type 2 diabetes, 160 billion. The entire NIH is 40 billion. The entire USDA is 100 billion. The CDC is about 10 billion. The FDA is about 10 billion. So they spend more on direct medical care for, for diabetes than that. The CDC has one division, the Division of Nutrition, Physical Activity and Obesity. It covers nutrition, physical activity and obesity. It's 100 million a year right? Compared to 160 billion they're spending on medical care. So, so the system's kind of not aligned. So I think, you know, to, to, to uh, get to Rob's question, we have to align the, the economics of, of food and, and what Carter's talking about. It's a $3.6 trillion being left on the table. We have to figure out how to do true cost accounting of food at all these stages so that, that the healthier food that is nourishing and, and accessible for more, for more people and is sustainable for the earth is the, is the default, the lower price food, the easily accessible food. And the junk food is more expensive, harder to access and, and not culturally cool. So we've got a bunch of questions coming in, but I, I did have a couple while we're, we're on this, this path. Um, you had discussed the idea of the public not trusting government or business, and this was on a I Select Deep Dive earlier this month. You talked about the National Institute of Health should create an authoritative, create credible voice to speak about nutritional science. And you know, are, are your thoughts still, you know, that that you, there should be a National Institute of Nutrition? Might this be a way when you talk about the spending and how the spending pales, you know? In yeah. the, comparison to the problem? Yeah, we have to spur science and innovation. We know we've been disinvesting in science and innovation as a percentage of GDP since the 1970s and other countries, other nations are way ahead of us in spending on science and innovation. The the Council on Competitiveness, which is top business CEOs and university presidents came out with a report last year that one of the top threats to economic competitiveness is disinvestment in research generally. So first we have to really dramatically increase our research expenditures across the board. The, 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 the world's leading research organization is the National Institutes of Health. It's an amazing research organization, about $40 billion a year. And of its 27 centers and institutes, there's nothing focused on nutrition. So, so think about, again, like, like the problem in medical school, you have the premier organization focused on research for health, not having an institute focused on the number one cause of poor health. And so that is something that is just sort of now we see it. It's a no-brainer. We have to create a new institute. That that should be through congressional legislation, which because it, it needs to be added. And it sh- and really importantly, we need a new budget. 
if we just add an institute and take away from the other institutes, right, I'd make it a no sum game, nobody wins, but we, we need more budget. Well, let's just say a billion a year, right? We're spending 160 billion on diabetes. Can't we spend a billion a year on a new national institute of nutrition? That would have so many incredible benefits. And we, we've written a, re, a report on this and, and we have a coalition of over 90 companies and investment funds and advocacy groups supporting this. And we're talking to Congress about this, that there are many, many benefits. There would be leadership. There would be leadership at NIH to kind of coordinate and organize the research, not just within NIH, but with the Department of Defense, with the VA, with the USDA, with the CDC, with the FDA, with the Department of Education, with NASA, all the, all the uh, organizations. They would, they would be able to do really cutting edge foundational science. I mean, don't you want to know the health effects of coconut oil and intermittent fasting and vitamin D supplements and, you know, all of these things. Third, they would be that credible voice because, you know, USDA has, has is a, an amazing organization, but is viewed as having an inherent conflict of interest. They're supposed to be promoting U.S. agriculture and food industry and providing dietary guidelines. And so having that strong partner with USDA for, for you know, credible guidance would be important. And so I think there's, you know, many, many benefits to a National Institute of Nutrition. And the last two institutes were created about uh, 15 years ago by Senator Tom Harkin and Senator Tom Harkin, who's who now retired, but, but, you know, brilliant, brilliant man and leader has said that the time has come. It's time for a National Institute of Nutrition. Very interesting. Carter, you know, we've, we've talked about, we've talked about farm, big pharma, we've talked about healthcare, we've talked about the idea of a, you know, Institute of Nutrition. Has Wall Street really started to take notice? I, I mean, I know we've got Beyond Meat, we've got Impossible Foods, but what is it going to take for investors to really get behind these themes that food is medicine and food is health? And since this is where you spend your time, I'd, I'd be very interested in your view. Yeah, so I think that Wall Street, you know, Wall Street reacts to things that provide a return. Uh, the The companies that are doing the innovative things are coming to market. I think the the way to sort of think about this is we've spent uh, World War II forward uh, dealing with starvation on a global scale. So in, in many ways, the decisions we made in the food system in the positive related to how do we reduce the cost, improve yield, reduce the cost, get calories out. And, and so there are negative effects of that. We're now moving into a new phase uh, that will take some time. Uh, and we're probably, we're portioned into that phase. The way I might correlate it is, is if you think about the IT industry right around 1998 and which Paul, you were right dead center in the in terms of those things coming online. You know, you've got this plethora of companies that are getting ready to go public. They're going to go public, and then they're going to have an effect. And so today, Amazon is a dramatic company doing many things. Twenty years after, twenty five years after it went public. So I'd say that we are in a, from an investment phase where we're sort of later stage companies getting ready to go public. App Harvest is the most recent example uh, and has had very good price support in the public markets. Uh, they are very, very focused on just improving tomatoes. They're, the next act that they're gonna bring is to be valuable, but that's a that's a, a shift on infrastructure. Impossible is having a few challenges and beyond in terms of finding its footing, but those are examples. And then I, I know that there are certain companies that are gonna become public shortly that sort of contribute to this. So we're, we've got that phase. The, the thing that we think about is that when you go through that generational shift, if you sort of say we've gone through this 40, 50 year phasing around starvation, now let's move into a phasing of nutrition. Uh, that uh, the place we concentrate as on investors is who can develop a better, cheaper solution. And so 60% uh, of people's behavior is based on the price of things that they buy. And so if you can deliver a higher quality food at a cost lower than bad, uh, whether that's lower cost fresh food or lower cost good processed food or whatever the food class is across the whole spectrum, uh, then you're going you're gonna to change people's adoption through that combination of it makes them healthier and better and it's cheaper. And from there, the markets will realign. 
the final analogy I might make is we, we sort of think about this on a 5, 10, 15 year period. So we're like five years into a 15 year major change. I, you know, the analogy I might make a more current analogy I might make is uh, internal combustion versus electric. Uh, if you, the conversations we're having about the pharma companies is sort of like GM. GM has now got their new electric car logo. And there's a little question as to whether they really mean it. Uh, they probably do, and they're going to make a transition. But then Tesla, people are like, well, Tesla, is Tesla really doing the job or not? And what's going to happen? Well, the whole entire car industry is going to change so dramatically. People won't own cars. People, how they deliver cars are going to change. And so, you know, in the interim, you're going to see these ups and downs. And I think from a, a Wall Street standpoint, you're going to have some investors that, like a Kathy Wood that looks at a Tesla and says, I see $3,000 a share. Here's why. And she'll be right in some regard. And then, and then you'll see others. But you're going to, it's a really fascinating period where a combination of what we've talked about in terms of policy will shift. And the, the, the who is the Steve Jobs of food, of healthy food, is, is in the pipeline. I think I know who it is. I'll leave that alone right now. But, but he's in the pipeline. And it'll be a, it'll be obvious to everybody in five years, and and the, those companies are about to go public. But we're going to see a more voice come in from the entrepreneurial side that basically says, "Hey, can I deliver higher quality food without having to go through the medical industry, and without having to go through the pharmaceutical industry, and without having to go through sort of a subsidy program?" And in that introduction of that new food, or that shift in the food system. Um, which I might characterize as away from yield price uh, towards taste, nutrition, and quality. Um, I think when we see that shift, it's going to accelerate the policymakers because they're going to see the game moving and you're, you're going to see a lot of exciting things happen in the next four or five years. Interesting. Um, I wanted to get to another question. Richard Miller is asking for your thoughts on the system being a reactive healthcare system versus a preventative system? And does this require major disruption to intersect with a food prescription? Yes, that's exactly right. I mean, we are, you know, firemen being called at the, when the house is fully burning. I mean, I'm a cardiologist and, you know, that's where the house is fully burning down, not even a little fire in the kitchen and we're being called to put it out. And, you know, nobody's asking, well, how do we, actually stop the fires from happening in the first place, right? We're spending money on, on, on the fires, on having fancy fire engines and the latest technology for the firefighters. Uh, you know, the other example might be, you know, think about the military. Um, you know, for many years, the United States focused on hard power, uh, which is, you know, the, 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 the Army, the Navy, the Marines, the, the military. Over the last 30, 40 years, there's been enormous recognition and increased investment uh, in soft power, what's called soft power, diplomacy, education, US aid, uh, you know, State Department and so on. And you need a balance of soft and hard power. Our healthcare system is all hard power. It's all highly trained, you know, forces with highly technologically advanced, extremely expensive equipment to go in and, and win the uh, acute battle. They're not peacekeeping forces. They're not, they're not able to, you know, settle civil unrest and prevent conflict from happening. They're not, they're not used for that. So we don't have soft power in healthcare right now. So we need that, that equal investment in soft power. So I think there is going to be enormous disruption and, you know, it's going to come and it's starting to come again when the healthcare system really has to share the risk. And that's starting to happen. Um, but, but um, you know, with the accountable care organizations and others, but when the healthcare systems really have to start to share the risk, rather than you know, being able to be profitable with, with our economy going down the tubes, um, I, think it's, I think it's going to shift. And, and that's where you're gonna to start to see and already seeing healthcare uh, uh, organizations focusing on the social determinants of health, on housing, on transportation, uh, especially on food. Yeah, and they're, they're wildly different markets here. I mean, we, we see a real separation I think in terms of how long people are living a quality of life, if you have access to good quality food and such, you live longer. If you don't, you don't. And those cohorts do fall into different groups. Like we would really like to drive 
probably better food solutions into you know the lower co- cohorts in terms of economics. Uh, it's a harder group to reach uh, uh, because just even the supply chains into those systems are difficult. And so, as a to some degree, when we think about innovation today, when we think about innovation, we think about a Tesla. You know, I brought it up, but but only the upper class ends up getting that Tesla. Innovation in the twenties was or forties penicillin. Everybody has access to penicillin. Refrigerators. Everybody got access to. It. TVs, everybody got access to TVs. And so as we think about some of these innovations, the challenge we have from an, from an innovation standpoint is how do we make it so that it becomes widely, if we want to have a solution at the systems level, we really have got to make it so that these technologies can be adopted widely. One of the challenges on the healthcare side, I, 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 my GP just retired. I'm a wacko in terms of I've got Garmin on everything I have. I've got more data about my health. I, I just got my VO2 max up five points in the last last uh, four months. That's a lot. That's it was a huge achievement, but I, I actually, uh, to my cardiologist, I want to like go tell him, but he, like, can you connect to my Garmin? And he can't connect to my Garmin. And it's like, you want to like, I, I'm sort of a weirdo in this, but the, the notion of how we interface that coaching and helping in a healthcare solution, I think it's just going to be a different delivery model. I mean, I, doctors are not coordinated to be able to talk to their patient as a coach weekly. It's like once a year kind of thing. And so I think that there's just a lot of that interface that I would imagine is going to change. I have zero idea what the business model is going to be, but it, um, it, it will be different. We've got, we've got a question right along these lines, um, and it's from an Alan Gale. I can't see uh, the rest of his name, but he says, what are your thoughts for getting nutritional consumption information into EHRs so that nutritional intake data can be viewed against the biomarkers of disease? Well, you know, that's a spot on question. And, and so I, you know, I, when I think of food as medicine, I, I use the term is widely used. I use the term food as medicine specifically to mean that within healthcare, we value and use food, not, you know, supplements or, or clinics, special clinical nutrition, but food to prevent, manage and, and treat disease within healthcare. And so I think there's four top priorities and all of which could be implemented by private healthcare by you know states and Medicaid and by the federal government to Medicare and Medicaid and all should happen. One is medically tailored meals, which is getting you know nutritionally tailored meals to the sickest, absolute sickest patients who really can't even cook, and that saves money. Number two is produce prescription programs, which is for people that have specific diseases like poorly controlled diabetes or severe hypertension, other things, but but don't have access and ability to to get healthy food. You get them healthy produce; they cook at home. Three is medical education, which nutrition education, which we talked about. And four is getting nutrition into the electronic health record. If we don't measure it, it doesn't exist. And so I think that's really important. And uh, there have been healthcare organizations which have started to do this with physical activity, with things like the exercise vital sign or the physical activity vital sign, but it's not yet widely seen in nutrition. And the way to do that either is to change the standards, to change the standards that, um, uh, that, that CMS has to accredit uh, EHRs, you could actually change the standards, but that's pretty cumbersome to change the standards. So the more interesting kind of market forward way is to do it through FIRE, fast, interoper- fast interoperability healthcare standards. FIRE now, uh, Carter mentioned his Garmin, FIRE will let apps and other third-party apps intersect with healthcare systems. And so I think that companies that can figure this out, um, and, and this is going to be a private market solution, I think, create screeners, photographs, logs, other things that let people easily upload their foods and get them into, you know, understand their health, their, their dietary patterns and get them to the healthcare providers. I think we're going to see a lot of that. And, and I, and I want to just go back a little bit to something that Carter was saying and everything we've been talking about a little bit unrelated. We haven't talked about the consumer and all this. And so we've been talking about the system and investors and companies, but what's really exciting is beyond being confused, the, the, consumers really engage, really engage, and especially millennials. Millennials are not going to the old food brands, old restaurant brands, or they're, they're absolutely going to foods that they believe are healthier, more authentic, and more sustainable for the planet. But this is happening across the board. They're confused, and so they don't know exactly what to buy as a 
Beyond Meat Burger better for the environment and better for your health or just better for the environment, right? You know, open, open question. But the consumer is, is, is moving rapidly. And so if we can leverage that with, with credible science and, and minimize the confusion, you know, they're a very powerful force right now. And as you think about how innovation occurs, innovation, you know, sometimes I say it occurs two ways. So, you know, the geek in me sort of says there's the Schumpeter-esque creative destruction where technology comes from somewhere and enters the market. Or there's a Hayek kind of approach where it's cons- there's consumer and latent demand that's not being met. And then some entrepreneur figures out how to do it. And if we go back to telecom in the mid-80s, the big shift that occurred is we were 10 cents a minute, copper wireline, telco. And all of a sudden people said, well, here's MCI and they're going to charge something different. And AT&T is going to be broken up. And, and what then happened is consumers moved all around to different price points in, in that system. And then as those price points emerged, we had Cisco come online. Apple came on more online, mobile communications came online. We, we just sort of accelerated and it created a hundred X of market from what people expected. And so this point about one of the most fascinating questions I ask people about what went on in COVID, you know, especially 50 year olds. And they're like, well, I lost 20 or 30 pounds. Why? My 22 year old persuaded me to eat better. And I think there's probably 80% of the people who lost weight during COVID what had that specific influence. And so the, this is the latent demand part of the equation. And it's like, I want something better. I can't get access to it. I'm not going to go to a doctor. I'm not going to go into these other things. I'm programmed by my iPhone. We've got a whole shift in behavior. And I think what we may see is much more rapid adoption of these technologies then you know, any of us who are older are like, oh, it's gonna take a while. But I, I think if we can insert ourselves and pay attention to where that demand, what I call latent demand is and react to that um, with minimally viable products, those people like data. So longitudinal data. Um, what is my healthcare data over a period of time and provide that at scale to researchers and free of HIPAA to create a control group to better understand all these theories and apply big data. That, you know, the ability to suck that information in to help accelerate the decision process to inform the people doing the research, that's an early kind of thing we can do now that may get more data available to many to help persuade the policy people to make a shift and things like that. And we, we probably got to speed that process up and like one of the things I, if I were to do one legislative thing, I would, I would create a change in HIPAA that allows people to donate their data to science and, and just make it so that so I can give away my data to whoever wants to use it as a research without having to worry about the, the attribution back to me. Um, we're, we're kind of getting towards the end here, but I did have one question off of that, Carter, and this is for you and the doctor, but if the FDA is run by drug companies, basically telling them what to do. Who is the lobbyist or advocate for nutrition? Do we have, do we have an advocate for nutrition? Is it the nutritional supplement companies? Who, who is it? Do we see anyone emerging as the voice with the dollars behind them in terms of, poli- in terms of changing policy? Well, the only one I've heard is I, the only directly person I've heard comment on it is Senator Marshall. Maybe there are other so that you've seen legislatively and he has got a big both healthcare doctor, Senator Marshall. He's got both a healthcare concern and he's from Kansas. So he's got a lot of agriculture. So I do think you see some of the agriculture community uh, leaning in to basically say, look, if we can, uh, there's maybe an opportunity for us to get more value, but I'd be interested in uh, it's well, a- I, on, in the House and the Senate, there's certainly many policymakers who, who care about these issues um, and, and growing. And so in, in the Senate Agricultural Committee, there's a brand new committee, never existed before, and it's called the Food and Nutrition uh, Specialty Crop and Organic Crop Committee. And so it actually starts with food and nutrition, and it's led by Senator Cory Booker. So I think he's going to be a big champion for yeah. nutrition on the Senate side. There's plenty of people in the House. 
Delaro, Congressman McGovern, Congressman Tim Ryan, Kirsten Gillibrand, Shelley Pingree in the House, many, many congressmen and senators. But the challenge with, with everything going on is, is it to all feel that their constituents think this is their one of their top two or three priorities, not their 10th priority. If it's your 10th priority or even your fifth priority, it's not going to happen. So, so I think there are people in the House, but I think outside Congress itself, you know, the advocacy is growing. And so um, just two, two examples. And so one within the administration, new USDA Secretary uh, Tom Bilsack uh, in his Senate confirmation hearings, you know, uh, uh, and subsequently he's talked about nutrition security, not food security, nutrition security. He said, you know, we have to shift our focus to think about nutrition security and be sure that we're not just getting food to people, but healthy, nutritious food that, that you know, improves their lives. And so when you have sort of the head of USDA talking about nutrition security, that's a, that's a big shift. And of course he has the, the ear and the trust of, of President Biden as he should. I think secondly, um, you know, there is a growing coalition of, of nonprofits and for-profits that, that want these things fixed. And so uh, I mentioned our Food and Nutrition Innovation Institute, but we also have this ad advocacy organization. I welcome people to email me to, to learn more about it. Any companies are welcome to join our coalition. It's a federal nutrition advisory coalition, and it's over 90 organizations now, major, major companies who are all want to jointly advocate uh, for better nutrition policy. And, and, and it's, this is supported by the Rockefeller Foundation, who's very interested in this as well. So, so you see big, big movement from foundations, from business, from nonprofits to, to start caring about these issues. All of this is new. None of this would have been possible even five years ago. And so I think this idea that Carter mentioned is we're in a pretty rapid time of change and disruption um, is, is spot on. And there's generally, especially in the ag uh, groups, ag committees, there's generally pretty bipartisan uh, working together attitude because the, the way that agriculture fits into the, the election process and the advocacy process. So we, we, it's a, it's a better place to hang if you want to try to get some legislative action than than perhaps some of the other parts of the the, the uh, legislative branch. All right, with that, we're uh, we're right up against our our end point. I'm sorry we didn't get to all the questions, but we did get to most of them. I wanted to thank Dr. Mazafarian. I wanted to thank Carter Williams for joining us today. You can view this or any of our previous Crisonia conversations, as well as the Food is Health digital forum that we put on in November at www.crisoniaonthedelta.org. Um, while you're there, you can also join our vibrant Slack channel where the conversation continues. And please be sure to join us on the fourth Wednesday of each month for our next installment of Crisonia Conversations. Thanks. <laughs>